0: Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and I am out of the Science and Non-Duality Conference where I am doing a series of interviews with conference presenters. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with all kinds of spiritually awakening people, and there are several hundred of them online already, which you can find at batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P. My guest now is Adam Bucko. Adam is an activist, spiritual director to many of New York City's homeless youth, and co-author of a new award-winning book called Occupy Spirituality, a Radical Vision for a New Generation. And in my notes here, it talks about growing up in Poland and all that, but I'd rather have you just tell me than me reading the notes.
1: So let's do that first. Sure. So yes, I grew up in Poland during what sometimes is called the Polish Revolution, and so You know, growing up, it was in many ways a very painful experience to see all the violence around me, to see all the people around me kind of giving up on life simply because the world that they were born into didn't offer them any opportunities, didn't offer them any spaces in which they could claim their truth, so to speak. So early on, I feel like I had two choices. One was to become an alcoholic, which is... A lot of people around me were doing that simply to just get numb, not to feel the pain, or to become an activist. And so I chose to become an activist. In Poland in that time, the main tradition of activism was spiritual activism, activism that was connected to the Catholic Church, which at that point, you know, over 90% of all Polish people were Catholic. And so early on in life, I was inspired by these amazing priests who were kind of like Gandhis of Poland, so to speak, who dedicated their lives to working for social change, embodying the non-violent way of Jesus. What I got from them is that, you know, saying yes to God means saying no to everything that violates God's love in the world saying no to the enemies of life, as some people would say. It. You know, things like injustice, things like poverty, things like violence, and etc. Both of the priests who inspired me were killed. One of them was my parish priest. They were both killed by the regime, and so I also early on realized... Because
0: they were saying no to the yeah. things that the regime was... Yeah, exactly.
1: To. I mean, some of them were like, Fa- Father Jerzy was gathering thousands of people for these worship services where he would just pray, saying, "A blessed mother of those who are oppressed, pray for us. A blessed mother of those who are in prison, pray for us. A blessed mother of those who are trying to kill us, pray for us. The system didn't like that. And so he was killed first and then his best friend, who was my parish priest, continued his work. And he was one of the last victims of the regime, killed just a walking distance from a house in which I grew up. And so early on, I also realized that there are consequences for this path of spiritual activism.
0: When they were killed, did it frighten you? Did it dampen your enthusiasm? Or did it make you feel even
1: more determined to
0: follow their example? Well,
1: you know, as a kid, I identified with an archetype of a priest. I remember building an altar at home and trying to essentially see what I saw priests do. And for me, it was an authentic spiritual experience. You know, every time I did that, I felt held by this presence that, you know, all of a sudden I would just feel like even though everything around me is falling apart, my life nevertheless is worth living because there's this presence that I can rely on so when I saw those guys killed I was frightened because I so identified with that archetype and I so wanted to follow in their footsteps that I literally went into the space where I would be like am I going to be next you know I mean I was a kid
0: yeah Yeah, you mentioned you were a kid I was wondering actually how old you were during this phase when you first began to get this inspiration
1: I was pretty young probably started uh, I don't know maybe when I was like six seven years old you weren't yeah. drinking yet then? No, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> Even though in Poland, you know, those things happen early.
0: <laughs> okay, so then uh, I guess the regime, it means the communist regime that was yeah. governing Poland, then Wałęsa came in and mm-hmm. there was this peaceful revolution. How old were you when that was happening?
1: I was born in 1975. When Poland went into the state of the emergency, I was six years old. And then, you know, a lot of stuff happened after that, until 1989, and, and even, you know, after 1989, it was like an eruption of newness. And even though the system changed, a lot of people felt that we got stuck with a system that no one wanted. Being there, I mean, it really initiated me into this way of being, way of envisioning my life that is connected to wanting to work for a better world.
0: Did you actually consider entering the priesthood or did you go to seminary school?
1: Well, I spent quite a bit of my time in my 20s in different monasteries. I eventually went to India because I connected with a Hindu-Christian lineage, people like Father Beat Mm Griffiths, Sister Vandana Amatoji, Brother Wayne Teasdale. And so my goal was to go to India and to become a Christian sadhu and to follow in that tradition. And so when I was in my mid-20s, I went to India, but for me, you know, I had a big experience meeting homeless kids, and that changed everything. I feel like I was brought back to, to earth. I guess something to qualify, even though I had this idea about activism and I had all of those inspirations, at the age of 17, when I moved to the States... I felt very alienated. I couldn't speak any English. We were undocumented immigrants. I was playing music on the subway of New York City trying to, you know, make some money. And all of a sudden, I mean, my life, it felt like it collapsed. And a lot of it was just the post-traumatic stress disorder from all, all the stuff that I experienced in my childhood combined with the alienation of being in a new place, being completely cut off. And so when I started experiencing that, that experience, I guess, led me to an ashram where I was trained in contemplative practice. In the ashram, one of the Hindu swamis said, why are you even worrying about Hinduism? You have mystics in your own tradition. That's how I discovered Father B. Griffiths. And then from then, I mean, the dream was to really live as a Christian sadhu in India, you know, which is kind of funny, but I was very serious about
0: it. Was that a Hindu ashram that you found? Was that in the States or in India?
1: Initially, it was Satchidananda ashram. In upstate New York? No, in Virginia. Virginia, right. And then Swami Chidananda was still around. And then after that, when I went to India, uh, I was with Sister Vandana Mataji, which was a small hermitage outside of Rishikesh on the bank of the Ganges. And she was both a Hindu Swami and a Catholic nun. Mm-hmm. She was very close to Father Bid Griffith, Swami Tananda, Swami Chidananda from the Divine Life Society. And Swami Chidananda was her primary teacher.
0: Had Bid Griffiths already died then? Yeah. I'm going to be interviewing Andrew Harvey in a couple of months. Yeah, <laughs> Spend yeah. a lot of time with him. Yeah,
1: you. he's a good friend and mentor, and uh, he was very close with Father Beat.
0: So how long were you in India, and, and like, how intense was your spiritual practice there? Or was it mainly a service practice?
1: So my practice in India was very intense, but not intense in ways that you would imagine. You know, I went to India thinking that I'm going to be in some kind of a silent hermitage, and I was for a couple of weeks. After that, I moved into the slums outside of Delhi, and I was part of the ashram called Seva Ashram. And that ashram was a community of over 100 people who were rescued from the streets of Delhi. Most of them were, uh, you know, found with maggots in their bodies, completely falling apart. It also had a community of street children. So I moved to that ashram and started working uh, there. And that's where my real spiritual practice started, but it was a practice of working with homeless kids, sleeping on the streets in Delhi once a week, so connecting to them. right connecting the, uh, the contemplative practice to service. And, you know, that changed my life. I only lasted there for a few months because my body just completely fell apart. But that really took me into the core of my calling, which is to combine contemplative practice with working for social justice, where in the Christian tradition and other traditions we talk about the relationship between contemplation and action. What I learned through that experience is that not only they are related, action becomes contemplation. And so in a sense they're indistinguishable.
0: Do you see it as a dharmic thing uh, where some people are more naturally inclined to be contemplative or meditative and not worry much about actual seva in in the active sense? Or do you think that pretty much everyone would benefit from that, at least a lot more people than are currently engaged in, in that sort of thing?
1: I do think that some people are called to life in solitude. I have mentors who are hermits. But it's interesting how you phrased the question, you know. You said people who just focus on contemplative practice and don't worry about, and, and so the, the, well, I know the, a lot of
0: people who have been doing meditative practices for years and they would hardly lift a finger to help anybody. They're just absorbed or interested in their own inner experience. Right,
1: and I would say they're in some kind of a spiritual coma and they better get out of it. And I was in that kind of a coma myself. And it's not until I met a Carmelite hermit who said, you know, the first stage first step in a mystical life is to fall in love with life, I realized that I wasn't even really alive. I spent so much time disconnecting from different parts of myself to experience what the book said I should experience, this ultimate peace, that I fell asleep, even though I thought I was awake. And it's not, only, it's not until I was brought back to the streets that I started tasting God in a new way. So I think, you know, for me, spirituality that doesn't involve action is a big problem. And I think that, yes, some people are called to life in solitude, but the people that I know who are truly called to life in solitude, they spend most of their time praying for the world. They're breaking with the suffering war.
0: That's a nice point. So whether, you know, whether they're actually actively doing something for the world or quietly doing something for the world, you're you're kind of saying that it would benefit or behoove a spiritual aspirant to not just be concerned about his or her own yeah. subjective experiences, but yeah. to be concerned about the world.
1: Yeah. For me, spirituality without engagement doesn't exist and, and doesn't mean anything. That's my...
0: <laughs> well, it's an important point. I mean, there are a lot of voices out there that, are, that say the world is an illusion.
1: It's interesting, you know, because traditionally when you look at, for example, some of the spiritual structures, especially structures that advocated that whole philosophy of the world being an illusion, it's interesting because a lot of those teachers didn't exist in a vacuum. Oftentimes, they were kind of connected to the ruling elites and etc. Like even, for example, when you look at India, I mean, how many gurujis are connected? You know, it's like when I lived in India you gained good reputation as a guru when business people and, and government officials started visiting endorsing you yourself. and endorsing you. And so, yes, I mean, the world is an illusion, but what does it mean?
0: It's an interesting story. You know, Ama, the hugging saint, yeah. who does a lot of stuff for, to help people in India and elsewhere in the world. And, you know, all these projects, working day and night hospitals and orphanages and schools and, you know, helping get prostitutes off the street and all mm-hmm. sorts of things. One of her swamis once said to her, what more can we do for the world, and she said, what world so she she realizes that ultimately there is no world and nothing yeah. ever happened, but at the same time is spending every ounce of her energy to relieve the suffering of the world
1: yeah, but see, I, I have a problem with that thing that nothing ever happened. I think that things do happen, you know, and I think that it 's a difference in the framework uh, and I think that The frameworks that we adopt for our spiritual journey have ultimate significance because they determine uh, and color our realization. And that then determines our engagement with the world.
0: Yeah, but I think it actually is symptomatic of a certain stage or development, and perhaps a very advanced one of consciousness that one can actually perceive that the world appears to have manifested, but actually never did so, it's just an appearance. And yet that doesn't, if it's if it's integrated and balanced properly, that does not in, in any way diminish one's zeal or determination to improve the world.
1: Yeah, sure, but that's a very specific framework, and I just don't know that I would agree with it, even if it means, I don't know, challenging. because. So many people are saying it. This is not real. This is not happening. I mean, if we throw this battle at someone, they will experience pain. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Right? And so, yes, in an ultimate sense, but what does that mean? You know, that's not my experience of God. My experience of God is an experience of God who is breaking, who is suffering, who is crying with all the children of the streets.
0: Well, the reason I bring up the point is to actually, I think, make the same point you're trying to make, which is that even if one either understands or experiences that ultimately there is no world, that does not absolve one from the should not absolve one from the responsibility right. of helping the world. Right. You know? Doesn't let you off the hook.
1: But it's easy then to use that as not wanting to do much. And I mean we we, we see that in so many spiritual circles where the way that you started this interview, so many people think that there's nothing to do. And yeah. You know, on a certain level of realization, there's a way to interpret that. Where there is nothing to do means that God does through us. But it's dangerous to make that statement without that kind of a realization because then it's oftentimes just used as an excuse for non-engagement.
0: We talked about this in the last interview with Dorothy Hunt, that you know, their knowledge is different in different states of consciousness and one can misapply an understanding that is appropriate for one level of consciousness to one's own. And it's a very impractical kind of arrangement, right? Right. Yeah. So, you know, one thing that might be an incentive to people who are kind of caught in the cul-de-sac we've just described of uh, kind of a narcissistic or self-indulgent focus on their own development to the exclusion of the world is to better understand how service to the world is actually conducive to one's personal growth. I mean, If that's what primarily what people are interested in, maybe they would be more inspired to help the world if they thought it was going to help them. And then later on they might feel that, oh, there's an intrinsic value in just helping the world. What would you say to
1: that? <laughs> well, we know from Bhagavad Gita that it's possible to use the path of service as a way of spiritual practice. But I wouldn't reduce service just to a tool that can enable us to experience God, I think service is both. On one hand, yes, it is a tool for us to touch God, for us to experience God, for us to feed God, for us to house the homeless God, uh, so to speak. But at the same time, the way that I experience service, it's a form of prayer. Uh, It's a form of me letting God use whatever it is that I have and turn it into something that could be offered to the world. And in that sense, yeah, it is, I guess, beneficial to my spiritual development, but in that space, it's all just about saying yes and living in surrender. And so in a sense, even the development itself, I'm not in charge of it. So in that sense, it's just the practice of surrender at all times to allow God to live through me as much as possible.
0: And that's a rather mature level of experience and understanding. Most people don't start out with that. They think, right. what's in it for me? What, well, how can this benefit me? And that's why I brought up the question. Because, I don't know, maybe even you started out that way or maybe not. But over time...
1: No, I mean, where I started, I wanted to be on the, sit on the mountain and experience God. And I didn't realize that the experience of God only started happening when I actually started working with the poor. But I think the years of contemplative practice informed it and prepared me for it. But it's only when I started engaging with the poor that God kind of broke into my experience and I began to feel like, you know, this life is not mine.
0: If, I, if somebody asked me, like, what are the mechanics through which Seva is conducive to spiritual evolution, my response would be that It kind of attenuates the ego because it's not all about me. Mm -hmm. It's about you know serving him and serving her, and Mm -hmm. and when you when when that's your orientation, then there's naturally an attenuation of the ego, Mm -hmm. a a diminishment of me, me, me. Mm -hmm. Would you agree with that definition, or would you like to elaborate upon it?
1: Yeah, I agree with that definition, but I don't really think much about that, you know, because for me it's a simple. It's a simple act of showing up and making myself available and being in a state of receptivity and and, and openness and not knowing and then just saying yes to the grace that wants to take this life and use it for something. And so in that sense, I'm very much kind of not engaged in even understanding the process of how this action or or this pattern or this engagement is going to, take me to the level that I want to be at. Having said that, I think that, yeah, I mean, what you said, I would definitely agree with that.
0: When you did begin engaging with the poor and helping in the ways that you do, uh, and you you mentioned that then you began to really feel like an instrument of the divine. Let's, Let's talk about that a little bit more. What was the real felt sense of being an instrument of the divine, for instance? what sort of things began to happen in your life that hadn't happened when you were sitting on the mountaintop?
1: Well, so for me, it's a very kind of simple situation. You show up, you sit with a homeless kid who's breaking. A homeless kid who, let's say, has been abused, sexually abused for 14, 15 years. And so what I used to do, I would show up and I would try to use all the skills that I have to try to make them feel better to try to solve whatever problem I thought they had. Eventually, I moved into a new space where I started showing up and treating that encounter as a form of contemplative prayer. And the form of the contemplative prayer that I practice is is a simple receptive method of just being in the state of curious not knowing and resting in the divine presence, trusting that there is a divine presence. And so I started showing up like that, putting everything, all of my skills, everything that I know aside, and just being there in that kind of a state of curious not knowing, in that kind of a state of complete trust and surrender. And what I started experiencing is that then I would just feel their pain, and it would be really intense. And they would be breaking, and I would be breaking with them. And then what I started experiencing is that every time that happened, there was this something that would just begin to kind of arise, an energetic kind of an impulse. And then it was all about just kind of following it and allowing it to bring proper words, bring proper actions. I mean, it's very hard to do, but it was very kind of physical almost way of arising and what I started experiencing is that every time that I have the courage to just follow it the right words would come all of my skills that I had would be somehow used but maybe assembled in ways that I wouldn't normally think of assembling them and then there would be this kind of a something that is doing the work and what I would also experience is that it was not really clear who was helping whom because I would feel that my own wounds are being touched as well. And, and it just felt like an experience of deep prayer. And so in terms of this kind of felt self, I mean, it's kind of like, I don't know, like being on some kind of a wave that just arises and, and takes all of your stuff and turns it into something that at that particular moment could be beneficial. And then the next stage of that experience was how can I restructure my life and how can I develop a rule of life, a set of practices that can enable me to go back to that space as often as I can. And then eventually when I started doing that, that sense of being in that presence and that presence kind of you know, living through me, Expanding in terms of, you know, like it, it wouldn't just be when I meet with a homeless kid, but it would be a shift that would take place in terms of me just being in this kind of a state of awareness. Are you yeah. in that state of awareness right now? I can be if I, if I want to. I mean, it's just a matter of coming back to the heart and here we are
0: is there any reason any advantage to not being in that state all the time or is I and mean, do you expect that you know one of these days it'll just become no but I forget I ingrained.
1: mean you know it's like uh, <laughs> I have all this stuff and, and so it's a matter of just I mean I love what Sufis the word that the Sufis use remembrance mm. um, and it's not so much the remembrance of what that presence feels like but just remembrance to. okay here we are
0: yeah In the Hindu tradition too, Arjuna says at the end of the Gita, I have remembered my true nature. Mm -hmm. So from the perspective of that kid, the homeless kid, or perhaps from a third party observer, what would they have seen different about the Adam who was mainly working from his skill set and the Adam who was mainly working from his heart?
1: I don't know, you know, I mean, I'm not quite sure to be quite honest with you, but a lot of our kids, when they come to to our center, and they say, well, I come here because this is my church. Mm-hmm. And so there is a sense that when, when they walk into this space that they feel loved, that they feel that the space is filled with something that holds them in a unique way.
0: Mm. Uh, and now you're doing it in New York City, right?
1: Yeah, we're doing it in New York City. We've had this organization called the Reciprocity Foundation for the last 11 years. Mm-hmm. And it's an organization that you know, has a rhythm of life, so to speak. It's almost like a new monastic kind of an enterprise. Everyone who works there works from that kind of a contemplative perspective. Now, the help that is being provided is not just about helping kids to develop a contemplative practice. It's about getting them jobs. It's about sending them to college, finding money for college. It's about really getting them out of homelessness. But it's all done from that kind of a contemplative perspective. And our kids call it church. You know?
0: I bet you have some fantastic before and after examples.
1: Yeah, in the last 11 years, I mean, we probably have helped, uh, I don't know, maybe 1,500 young people, and most of them are no longer homeless, you know. And some, I mean, some amazing stories, both big and small, but, you know, the stories that really touch me is when I see that someone was able to discover their gift and then use that gift in service of building a world that reflects more compassion. I had this wonderful mentor who was a street rabbi and he was a Hasidic rabbi. He was trained by some of the greatest you know, Hasidic masters in in the Middle East and he always tells me about this thing from the Jewish tradition, you know, think about Tikum Ulam, the work of healing, the work of repairing the world and he says, you know, every one of us comes here to fix just one thing. And so what is that thing that you are here to fix? And no one else can do it. And so therefore, everyone is so important. Because what you can do, no one else can do. What I can do, no one else can do. So for me, the most beautiful stories are when people find that one thing. And then they do whatever it takes to reshape their lives, to heal from their trauma, to do whatever it is that they need to do so they can restructure their lives in such way that fixing that one thing becomes the center of their life.
0: you know the starfish story? No. Well, you probably, I bet you do. So an old man and a young man were walking down the beach, and there were all these starfish that had washed up on the sand, and the sun was out, and they were all going to dry out and die. And so as they were going along the old man was reaching down and, as they, and picking up a starfish and throwing it in and mm, they'd keep yeah. walking and then he'd pick up another one and the young man said what's the point of doing that you know there's so many starfish you, you can't really save them all And the old man reached down picked up another one threw it in and he said well I made a difference to that one
1: yeah I do know that story that's beautiful yeah yeah
0: the reason I bring up that story is I, I wonder if you went through a phase where you felt like this is just a drop in the bucket. There's so much suffering in the world. And over 11 years, I've helped 1,500 kids, but God, there's billions of people who are in bad shape. You know. And did you ever get a feeling of overwhelm or in- inadequacy that you couldn't do more?
1: You know, I think I felt that in India. But I think once I came back, and once especially I went through the shift that I went through in my work kind of moved from therapeutic work to prayer, really, I stopped really working for results. I do the work that I do because I feel called to do it. It's the right thing to do. But in terms of, you know, what comes out of it, I mean, there are never any guarantees. And sometimes I'm surprised. You know, someone calls. Not too long ago, I had a call from someone who said, you know, I just attended a couple of classes at the foundation, and I still have the telephone number. It's been six years, and I just wanted to let you know that it changed my life, and now I just graduated from college. Now, what I remember of that kid is that he was staying at a shelter, he got drunk, was kicked out, got arrested, and then we never saw him again but something was planted, some kind of a seed, and obviously it made a difference. So to be quite honest with you, I have no clue what happens. I mean, obviously, yeah, I would like to see changes. I mean, who wouldn't? But I stopped working for results because all I can do is just show up and do my best.
0: You probably know that verse in the the Gita which says you have control over action alone, never over its fruits.
1: Yeah, don't be attached to the fruits. Yeah, live not
0: for the fruits of action, nor attach yourself to inaction. Right, that's, that right. That kind of harkens back to what we
1: were yeah, talking about. Doing. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Gita, that's like one of the best yeah. teachings on the on surface, really.
0: Yeah, it also says even no obstacle exists, and there's that, and, and also a little of this removes great fear. So, you know, mm-hmm. those, those couple of exposures made mm-hmm. a huge difference in that kid's life. Yeah. So do you have any plans to... Uh, Extend this beyond New York, or have you already done so? I mean, is it becoming some kind of nationwide network or anything?
1: No, uh, we actually don't want to grow our center. I think scaling is a model for banking, but even in banking, it doesn't seem to be working.
0: (laughs) Are there any like sister centers that are on? Yeah, there there are. Well, so
1: what? Our way of expansion is to train big established organizations, some of the leaders in the field, mm. and infuse them with the skill sets that we developed and infuse them with with our model. And so, for example, in New York City, right now, all of the big organizations or most of them that work with, with homeless youth foster youth are being trained by us. And it's happening in other states and, and other cities. But as a center, we're very clear. This is what we do, this is who we are. And her center feel mo- feels more like a family. Mm-hmm. I mean, can't make families too big. Right. Gets messy and confusing. I would like to know more
2: about your center. Do the kids sleep there? Do they come just for a session with you? or So
1: it's a center, they don't sleep there. It's a, it's a center where they come during the day and in the evenings. Uh, And the kids who come there come from all the shelters all around New York City. And the kids who don't have shelters, we place them in shelters and help them to have a place to stay. And so we deal with everything but housing. We provide a lot of holistic medical staff. We help them to find a sense of vocation. We connect them to leaders from different industries and organize projects where they can learn certain skills and develop a professional portfolio. Then after that, we place them in formal internships and then eventually help them to go to college. The goal for every kid is to essentially graduate from college and come back and and serve others.
2: Boys and
0: girls? Yeah. Okay, and where are their parents and how do you get
2: your funding?
1: You know, that's a a complicated question in terms of where are their parents. You know, sometimes kids become homeless because they they identify as gay, bisexual, lesbian, transgender, and especially religious parents tend to kick them out, thinking that somehow the streets will, you know, fix them. So that's about 40% of our kids. Then in addition to that, you have kids who grew up in the foster care system, And whenever they aged out of the system, they simply were dropped off at the bus station uh, and told to go follow their dreams. That happens quite often. Sometimes, you know, kids come from poor families and families are simply not able to take care of them. And then you also have kids who have to run away because they're being abused. So that's kind of how, how that works. Uh, we get our funding through individuals and foundations and, and you know, different kind of philanthropic initiatives. Uh, and it's never easy. You know, no one is really interested in homeless youth.
2: I enjoyed uh, listening to your story, especially about Indian kids. I've been there in New Delhi. Mm-hmm. So, um, a couple of questions. You talked about um, an approach with um, curious, non-knowing,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and a sense of prayer, and then it said that awareness kind of suffused you. You were carried by a wave. Was there a sense of somebody praying to somebody else? Who was praying to what? And what was the dynamic? What was, what was it like? And when that current happened over a few months, what was the metamorphosis from that current, from initially wanting to do something to, for yourself, perhaps, then it carrying you by itself on a way.
1: You know, the sense of praying to someone else, Uh, Yes, there was a little bit of that as an introductory practice. I often start with, with praying to someone else and then that allows me to show up in a specific kind of a way, a way of just being in a state of openness and receptivity. And then what happens after that is usually just that there's a sense of Grace just kind of taking over and doing the work. And it's not like I'm completely lost in that. There is a sense of individuality. And there is a sense of individuality, but it's a different sense of individuality. It's a sense where all of the things that are me exist, but in a slightly different configuration. Sometimes in a kind of a surprising configuration. And I feel more than myself. And more of myself than at other times, so that's kind of what the experience
2: is like for me. Uh, I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, I remember Mother Teresa was asked this: that uh, why are you hugging these children with leprosy? And she said that I'm not. I see, I'm seeing Christ, in I'll one of them. Mm-hmm. So was that a similar paradigm? Like you're seeing God in them, in whatever. May- Formation in your service, or?
1: I like to say that, you know, my God lives on the street. So, as a practice, yes, I'm kind of, in a sense, trying to relate to everyone as if they were God. At the same time, the actual experience, you know, so there's that, but that's the starting part. And then the presence just kind of, you know, the wave comes and it just happens. And that's when I don't really need to think much about that anymore. I mean, it's kind of hard to describe that. But, you know, for me, a lot of those kind of images and, you know, formulations, they are always a starting point. And I love this idea that, yes, I am serving God, I'm touching God. But that still happens here. And it's good enough of a story for me to get me going.
0: I bet uh, you it's not just happening here. I mean, there must really, your, your heart is so open. You know?
1: Yeah, no, yeah, but, but, you know, but it's like, it's something that motivates me yeah. to show up, and then once I show up, something else happens. Right. And then it's not so much that you know I'm serving God; it's just that God is serving God.
0: Right. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. I sort of feel like that with this, although I have much more respect for what you're doing than what I'm doing. No, but, I but mean, there's this—you know—everyone like, everyone has I'll a different our, exactly. We all have our roles to play. Yeah. yeah, but there's this sense that oh yes, I'm serving an instrument, instrument of the divine. But there's also the actual visceral. Mm-hmm. felt sense yeah. that that's really what I'm doing, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is much more than an idea. Yeah, and which has a very personally. You know, I asked that question earlier about what personal evolutionary benefit might come from this. Mm-hmm. I feel like a, you know a lot of more voltage has been plugged into my life as mm-hmm. a result of being willing to serve in that capacity. Mm-hmm can't even sleep at this conference
1: (laughs) that's good (laughs) or not so good (laughs) I haven't slept much since I got here it's like whoa
0: okay we have a few minutes left and I I'm sure there's a million brilliant questions I could ask you that I haven't thought of so what am I missing what would you like to say to us and to everyone who will watch this that I haven't thought to ask or no one else has thought to ask
1: well so work with homeless kids is my way of prayer and practice and out of that for me emerged in a sense a very specific kind of a practice and almost a way of working with people and now and the second part of my work is just working with young people in general uh, and building what we are calling helping to build what we are calling the new monasticism the uh, new
0: monasticism
1: mm-hmm. and it's essentially how can we organize young people and offer them a mature framework for their spirituality where they can begin to do what traditionally only has been done in monasteries, but do it in such way that their spirituality begins to take them into the heart of the world, that their spirituality allows them to have more meaningful relationships including you know family and etc so not necessarily something that takes them outside of the world but that takes them into the heart of the world spirituality that allows them to claim their gifts and use them in service of building a world that, you know, reflects compassion, justice, nonviolence. So that's kind of the second part of my work. But a lot of that stuff for me, in terms of how I work with young people, all of that, I mean, I would like to say that I've learned it in monasteries or somewhere else, because that sounds cool, but I didn't. I learned it by sitting with homeless kids.
0: And this new thing you're doing with the kids who aren't necessarily homeless, is that being well received?
1: Yeah, it's being well received. And The primary question for young people, the primary spiritual question for young people nowadays, I find is, what am I called to do? Who am I called to be? Uh, I think that's why, you know, we look at books like Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Life. I mean, I know so many people who disagree with his theology, but still read the book. And that's because all of us are trying to figure that out. And for me, to know what your vocation is, it requires you to be in a state of prayer where that impulse of God, where you can be aware of that impulse of God that is arising in your heart and then say yes to it and allow it to lift through you. So your life can be reshaped in such way that you live as an expression of that impulse. And so for me, that's action and contemplation. That's what knowing your calling is about. And that's what spiritual practices and everything else, why they are there for us to be able to be in that state and to allow that to happen.
0: Is there a fairly significant percentage of young people who are thinking this way, or are we talking about some little subset? And the I, vast majority. I think. Uh, with I sports. mean, there's
1: no way to know, yeah. but but I think that everywhere I go, there are so many young people who are interested in this stuff. And you look at some of the recent movements, like. Occupy Wall Street, for example, a few years ago, or even now Black Lives Matter, the environmental movement, some of the you know, evangelical and even post-evangelical youth who are deciding to move into places abandoned by you know, the empire and dedicate their lives to service. I mean, it's happening everywhere. It's just that it's not always detected by the media, but that's probably good. This way they have time to build without being distracted.
0: I think that gives us hope
1: yeah I, yeah absolutely
0: I'm getting all these smiles and <laughs> people are making all these noises of, of appreciation and everything Throughout, you can't pick it up on the mic but the audience is very happy about what you've been saying well that's great Adam I've, I really appreciate the opportunity to.
1: well thank you for this opportunity you know I've watched your talks on, on YouTube I loved especially the one with Father Thomas Keating who's oh, yeah. been and your friend Chris Grosso oh, yeah and then Chris Grosso absolutely And I'm excited that you're going to be talking to Angie Harvey.
0: We were going to do it just before I left, and a squirrel got into the the power lines outside our house and blew out the fuse, and so I had no electricity. So I called him and said, can't do it. (laughs) So we decided to reschedule when he came back from India. Good. The squirrel made a sacrifice, because somehow or other that'll probably end up being a better time to have done it. Yeah. So thank you to the squirrel. All right. Well, thank you to you, Adam. Thank you. Let me just make a couple little concluding remarks. Um, Those of you who are watching this online, and there's always, I'm sure, a few people who stumble onto these interviews for the first time, this interview is is part of an ongoing series, and there's uh, over 300 of them now. So if you'd like to check out the rest of the series, go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and there's a past interviews menu where you'll find them organized or categorized in four or five different ways and so if you explore that alphabetical chronological categorical you'll probably find something that appeals to you this exists as an audio podcast for those who don't have time to sit in front of their computers all day but like to listen to stuff while they're commuting or whatever there's also an email sign-up thing where you can sign up to be notified each time a new interview is posted and there's a donate button, which, by virtue of which I am here at this conference and which enables us to do this whole thing. So we're a 501c3, as I'm sure you are. So thanks for listening or watching, and we'll see you for the next one. Thank you.